This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. If you read the story of Samson, and most of us don't, we just kind of hear about it, but you learn that Samson is not the sharpest tool in the shed. He's not. He loves to make jokes. He fancies himself as a bit of a comedian. He loves women. He loves wine. And he loves riddles. And yet, he's one of the very best pointers that we have to the work of Christ in the New Testament. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Welcome to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron. In this series called Origins, Pastor Jeff is looking at ordinary people in the Bible who faced great adversity, but found hope in God's promises. Today's message takes us to the book of Judges chapter 15, where we uncover the story of Samson. As we explore these verses, we'll see that Samson's deconstruction brings about the Israelites' salvation. Let's hear from Pastor Jeff as he begins this message. I'm in Judges chapter 15, verse 9 through 20. Judges 15, 9 through 20. In the Bible times, we meet a group of people referred to as the judges, the judges. But it's a, the term is a bit misleading because when you and I think of judges, we think of like Judge Judy, uh, ruling on legal matters and having a very low tolerance for stupidity. Have you seen that show? She has some great lines. I wish I could read them all, but one of her lines I like, she says, I want first-time offenders to think of their first appearance in my courtroom as the second worst experience of their lives, circumcision being the first. (laughs) Sometimes when people are talking and she doesn't want them to talk, she'll say, two people can't talk at the same time. So when you see my mouth moving, it means you need to be quiet. Very direct, very judgmental, but judges in the Bible, they're called shofets. And they're not really judges, they're, they're a kind of military leader, a deliverer. So Deborah was one such leader or judge. Gideon was another. And then you have what we're going to talk about today, Samson. The Old Testament's version of Rocky. For those of us who saw the Rocky movies, we watched the evolution of Sylvester Stallone's acting. He had one line in the first movie, right? Yo, Adrian, that was it. Samson is on the same intellectual prowess. Yo, Delilah. If you read the story of Samson, and most of us don't, we just kind of hear about it, but you learn that Samson is not the sharpest tool in the shed. He's not. He loves to make jokes. He fancies himself as a bit of a comedian. He loves women. He loves wine. And he loves riddles. And yet, he's one of the very best pointers that we have to the work of Christ in the New Testament. Archetypes, origins. The similarities between Samson and Jesus are are compelling. Uh, It's one of the reasons Samson is a fantastic archetype. For instance, just a couple of things, your general knowledge, Jesus will also be captured by his enemies. He will be turned over to his enemies by his friends. Uh, He will call on God to give him strength in his hour of trial. He will stretch out his hands. Remember when Samson pushed the pillars? 
He will stretch out his hands and he will accomplish more in his death than he ever did in his life. His sacrificial act will yield his own life, but it will also destroy the enemy. In fact, Jesus too healed many while he was living on the earth or in his presence on the earth. But in his death, by his stripes, all men, women can be healed. So yeah, Samson is a clear archetype, but what I decided to do, there's a part of his story that I think most of us aren't unfamiliar. I'm going to read it to you. The rest of Samson's story, Judges 15.9, the Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The people of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Now watch that line, you're going to see it often. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam. Now, how, do you, how does 3,000 men go to see one? 3,000 men go to see Samson. Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. These, these are Samson's own people. Samson said, swear to me, you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We'll only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes, led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, that is Samson. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys out of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. I told you he was a comedian. I'll explain that in a moment. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramat Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, you've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called en Hekori, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now, when pastors preach on Samson, especially when I preach on Samson, I'm more fired up than any other time, and here's why. Because I get to preach the gospel. And when you get to preach the gospel, you know you're about to give good news. And you hope that there are people who haven't understood it before, and this will be the first time they get it. So I'm going to give you permission, after I take you through this intellectual exercise, I'm going to give you permission to sit back and relax a little bit, but do the intellectual exercise first. And then sit back, relax, and just absorb it, and let it change you. This is the gospel. We're in the Bible. Even though it's Saturday night and you're tired, and you look right now like you're dead people walking, you should see what I see right now. Come on, man. Listen, and let the word of God change you. So when we are trying to contextualize the gospel, we will often read, pastors will, at least I think we should, social theory or social analysis. Now, we don't do that because we think society knows better than God how our lives should be going. We just want to understand culture and the way we're thinking so that we can put the gospel in terms that are relevant to the present generation. So having said that, did you know that Princess Diana died on the same day as Mother Teresa? Did you know that? They died on the same day. Social critics ask this question. 
Why was there so much, so much more grief over a celebrity than a hero? Because there was a lot more grief and press over Princess Diana than Mother Teresa. And they answered their own question. They said, because it proves the shallowness of our culture. Other critics said, we can't relate to Mother Teresa. She didn't care how she looked. She obviously wasn't concerned with her hair or accessories. She didn't talk about comfort or happiness or fulfillment. She never married. We can't relate to her. Diana, we can relate to. She cared about all those things. Mother Teresa, she was strong. She lived with a sense of duty and righteousness. Diana, flawed, superficial, conniving, and most importantly, transparent. That's what they said. Two public figures, two heroes defined differently. One righteous and strong, the other weak and vulnerable. In essence, social theorists tell us this is the difference between the last generation and this generation. It's the difference between hero worship and hero deconstruction. In the early 20th century, I remember when Superman came out, the first one. Hero Superman. He was of impeccable character. He was almost incorrigible. A strong sense of duty. He never lied. He was filled with character and self-sacrifice and integrity. That's the past generation. Hero worship. Then we come to the present. Do we have hero worship in the present? Absolutely not. We have hero deconstruction. This is the postmodern world. We don't have hero worship. We have hero suspicion. We're suspicious of anybody who looks that good. That's where we are. We don't trust anyone who looks that honest. They've got to be hypocritical. And the real reason we don't like heroes anymore is because they make us feel insecure about ourselves. And we need our safe space. We much prefer, say, the social theorists. This is going somewhere. We much prefer celebrities because they're so flawed. People who come on talk shows and they tell us how they struggle with suicide and body shame and insecurity and a lack of meaning and purpose. Now, those people we can relate to. Warren Truitt, a social critic, writes this. We no longer look for salvation in unblemished heroes. We want people who are complex, dependent, and changeable. Most modern psychologists see the individual as more changeable than stable. We don't want one dominant authority to tell us what to do. We don't want people who crush us. We don't want someone who does their duty. We want authenticity. We don't want authority. Now, you think about what they're saying. They're saying that we today are more impressed with an unrighteous leader who confesses than an unrighteous leader who presents us with a crushing standard to live up to. That's where we are. Amazing. Carol Gilligan wrote about Princess Diana in the New York Times. Listen carefully. She said this, why do we like Diana so much? It was a relief to everyone to know that she was not an angel she did not sacrifice herself for the sake of her children. The outpouring of emotion shows how deeply she was joined in the choices she made. And then she finishes by saying this, like Eve, Princess Diana came to know good and evil, but unlike Eve, she refused to be ashamed, refused to hide. She found her voice, her pleasure, and shattered the icons that imprison us. Do you know what, do you know what this says about us? So typical of postmodern hero hatred. Princess Diana... Diana frees us from the crushing weight of duty. We don't need no heroes. We just want transparency and authenticity mixed with a life of failures, celebrities. Now, you've heard me say in my own profession, 
that I will often speak with young pastors, and there's a lot of young pastors gaining quite a following because they are transparent. And transparency is a good thing, no doubt. It is important that we confess our sins to each other. The Bible says that. And I understand why we want to be transparent in order to avoid the hypocrisy that has plagued the church of our day and our time. But I remind them, and you've heard me say the same thing, transparency is not the same thing as repentance. And if you're not careful, you will give your congregation a license to sin. Transparency is not the same thing as repentance. And when you get to the point where you think, well, I don't need to work on my life, my character, I just need to confess that I'm weak. I don't need to get hold of my addiction or overcome my temptations. I just need to be honest that I'm a failure. And you think somehow that's righteousness. Then the church loses its distinction, and so do you in the world. Now, some of you say, well, pastor, you're a pastor. I know, you know, no school like the old school. You're going to say, bring back the traditional values. We need character and integrity and virtue. We need hero worship again. Well, do you know who was really big on virtue? The apostle Paul. And before his conversion, he was a virtuous, law-keeper, pedantic, ritualistic, works-oriented, professional do-gooder. But after his conversion, in Romans 4 or 5, he said this, Now to the one who does not live virtuously, but who clings to the one who justifies the unvirtuous, God, those are Christians. Do you hear what he's saying? Hero worship nor hero deconstruction will work because the truth is we can't bear either one. Both will destroy us. Wait a minute, is, is the Christian faith, Pastor Jeff, not about virtuous living? Is that not the message of the Bible? Here is the virtuous Christian life, now go live it. Yes, it does say that, but the Bible never gives us hero worship. Do you understand that's why the Bible is different than any other religious book? It doesn't give you heroes to worship because all the heroes are flawed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the list goes on. The Bible doesn't say, look at these men and emulate them. They're in the Bible to show you what a bad example looks like. Now, they have some good, but you're not supposed to worship the hero. On the other side, neither does the Bible give us hero deconstruction. It doesn't say virtue doesn't matter. Just be honest in your unrighteousness and you'll be saved. Neither one works. What does the Bible give us then, Samson? Okay, you did the hard work. Stay with me. Many people see Samson as an old-fashioned hero, Superman with hair for kryptonite right? But Samson's anything but a virtuous hero. Sorry, but he's a sex maniac. He jokes after he kills people. In fact, in the Hebrew, the word for ass and the word for heaps of bodies is the same word, which is why the translators struggle to translate. He basically says, out of a donkey, I've made donkeys out of them. Or out of an ass, I've made them asses. That's what he says. He thinks he's a comedian. So from making jokes about dead people to chasing women, to following his own desires. It's not hero worship, no way. We're not supposed to emulate Samson, but neither is it hero deconstruction. Samson gives us hero vision. Now, here's what we know. First of all, Samson was very strong, no doubt about it, absolutely. When the Philistines came to capture him, they brought a 1,000 men. a 1,000 men to go against one. So he's obviously not only strong, but he's agile. When I read the story of Samson, I think of Troy, and Brad Pitt, and the opening scene, when they say there's no use of all this bloodshed, you send out your champion, we'll send out our champion, and the enemy sends out this big champion, and then here comes Achilles, and it's over just like that. 
He runs, 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 jumps over the big guy and runs a dagger through his back. It's over. Agile and strong. In the text, Samson seems to be not only huge, not only big and strong. In fact, I don't know if it tells us he's huge, just strong, but he's incredibly agile. But if you're going to understand the story of Samson, you must also understand that Samson is deeply weak morally, deeply weak spiritually. He's tremendously flawed. And he's, he's like a little kid. Let me give you the example. Go back to Judges 15, verse 11. The 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave, the rock of Edom, and said to Samson, do you realize the Philistines are rulers over us? In other words, why are you rocking the boat? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. Samson's answer is this. They started it. That Samson, they started it. Samson never really rises above the intellectual challenge Philistines who say in verse 10, the people of Judah ask, why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner to do to him as they did to us. You see what's going on here? What are we, 12 years old? The Philistines started it, Samson says. And the Philistines, Samson started it. We're going to finish it. This is an extremely dangerous moment in the life of Israel because the early oppressors who militarily conquered Israel, the Ammonites, the Midianites, the Moabites, were much more cruel to the Israelites than the Philistines. And because they were so cruel, when Gideon or Deborah, two judges, or any of the other judges came along and told them to rise up against their enemies, they did rise up, shook off the cobwebs, got the job done. But now, what are they doing? Listen, this is so important. It's a little side trip, but listen, it's so important. The Philistines, in the eyes of Israel, are the best oppressors they've, always, they've ever had, okay? We have jobs, we have food, we don't have any rights, but they treat us okay. Yeah, but you're still oppressed. You're still the people of God enslaved. And what is happening, by the time we get to Samson, the Philistines are absorbing the Israelites into their own culture. They're intermingling, intermarrying, so that in just one generation, Israel was in danger of losing their distinct culture, their faith, and the world's salvation. Now, stay with me for a moment here. There are two ways to annihilate a people. One is genocide, just kill them. The other is ethnocide. Ethnocide is to destroy their culture and their identity. You can either kill Israel in battle, or you can kill the ethnic line. You can destroy the uniqueness of the people of God, thus bringing God's promise to Abraham to an end. Now, the reason we have to stop here is because that's exactly what's happening to the Christian in the West, right? In the East, they are persecuting and killing Christians. But in the West, they're much more slow, much more wise. They're just trying to absorb the Christian into a secular culture, slowly, so first of all, they blame the Judeo-Christian culture for all the social ills, and then they, they try purposefully to alienate serious Christ followers who actually live by the Christian precepts. And they'll tell you, many claim to be Christians, but few really live that way. So when we find the ones who do live that way, let's alienate them and absorb the rest in, because in reality, people really want to do what's convenient. Now, some of you are thinking, Pastor Jeff, I, I like coming here because you never get political. Okay, all right, this is not political. This is just biblical. Stay with me. I read three headlines this week that really caught my attention, and I try not to read the news much because it's all bad. Canadian student kicked out of state-funded Catholic school for expressing biblical beliefs on gender. So I read the article, 
I thought, well, maybe he was a punk. Maybe he was just a jerk. But no, no hatred, no aggression on his part. He simply stated his beliefs, and he was met by the vice principal and arrested by two local police officers. Really? Another headline in North America, a Catholic priest was arrested for praying silently outside of an abortion clinic. So I read the story. Oh, there's probably more to it. No, wasn't picketing, wasn't blocking the entryway, wasn't even on the same side of the street, just praying and was arrested. The third headline, the FBI raided the home of a Catholic pro-lifer with guns raised and threatening, banging on the door and frightening the children in the family. Can you imagine the FBI showing up, 15 of them, showing up at your house and waving guns, all because... You're a pro-lifer. You hadn't committed a crime. You hadn't broken any rules. Yes. I know some of you think I have my head buried in the sand. I'm okay with that. I know the FBI is being weaponized against Christians. I know that. I don't talk about it very much. And here's why. Because the response is the same. And we're about to see what it should be right here. Which is why, which is why Samson is such a great archetype. Israel was allowing and in fact embracing the Philistines' efforts toward ethnocide because it was more convenient and easier not to fight or push back. Just go with the flow. When in fact, the loss was immeasurable. The disintegration of a culture that meant the disintegration of salvation. So what does God do? He sends Samson. Now, I know some of you are taking notes. You're thinking, well, what's your point? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. What does Samson do? Okay. Here's what Samson does. God sends Samson in. He's the deliverer. He's the judge. Not just Judy, the deliverer to save the people of Israel and the messianic line for salvation to come through the line of the house of David. And what does Samson do? He marries a Philistine. He tells a riddle at his wedding because he hates the Philistines. He wants to mock them. He bets them they can't solve it. They cheat and trick Samson and beat him at his own game. He retaliates, gets mad and kills a bunch of them. His Philistine father-in-law then will not allow Samson to see his own wife. In retaliation, Samson burns the fields, all the fields. In response, they kill his wife, and then Samson kills hundreds of them. And that's where we are in Judges 15. And Samson is just doing to them what they've done to him. And verse 20 of chapter 15 is crucial to the entire text. It says that Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. In other words, in spite of his moral weakness, in spite of his lack of spiritual vision, God used Samson to lead and deliver Israel. Now we're getting somewhere. Judges in Israel were not people who held official offices or positions. They were not judiciary. Judges were yashar, deliverers, military leaders that God used to save Israel when it was on the brink of destruction to keep his promise to Abraham. And in spite, here we are in spite of all of Samson's stupidity, in spite of his ego, his wrong motives, his vindictiveness, immaturity, God uses him to save his people. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. So his own people hand him over to be destroyed. We don't want you to be judged. We don't want you to be our king. And so because they try to avoid Samson's salvation, they actually bring it about. Their destruction, his destruction, brings about their salvation. Sound familiar? Stay with me now. It's one of those hard sermons, but if you do your homework, man, it's fun at the end.
You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.